following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Lord, your refuge, the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. Um, and this morning's uh, gospel reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it, is gi- for it has been given to me, and I give to you anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until the opportune time. Thank you, Doug. And thank you for the encouragement, Carrie. <laughs> um, I have a, a question to start out with, as, as I so often do, which is what comes to mind when you hear the word temptation? Turn to your neighbor and tell them your deepest, darkest (laughs) temptation. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I wonder for you what what comes to mind when you hear the word temptation. I I actually wonder, at first my assumption was everybody's going to have some religious baggage around this word, but I actually think that's not true. A A lot of you do, but not all of you do. Some of you might think of something totally not religious at all when you hear that word. Um, you might have a religious connotation to it. It might be something about food or sex or substances. And I think we all will kind of have our own different response to that word and that idea. My, um, my definition of temptation, I think what, what comes to mind for me is that it's an irresistible desire to do something that I know is wrong. But as I think about that being my definition, I really would stress that it's my definition. And for me, that comes from my particular religious upbringing and the specific way that things were talked about in my church setting. That temptation ended up being an irresistible desire to do something that I know is wrong. 
See, for me in church and in my early days of understanding Christianity, um, my tradition was very focused on correct behavior. And as is almost always the case in those situations, it was correct behavior as defined by that particular little slice of the Christian world, right? And so anytime I had a thought about doing something that was not the correct behavior, that's, that was like, that's the bullseye of what temptation meant to me. Now, I know that that's not everybody's story. So your answer might be shaped by something else. You might have your answer about what temptation means be shaped by your own religious history or lack thereof. It might be that your understanding of temptation comes from um, media and our culture's uh, extremely damaging way of talking about food and dieting. Your understanding of temptation might come from an experience with addiction, whether your own or that of someone who you love. Or fill in the blank. It could be lots of different things. But I want to acknowledge this because I think this is one of those topics and one of those times where it's good for us to pause sort of at the outset and recognize that there's a lot of baggage that comes with the term. And um, that's built into what I want to say about it today. But I want you to know that I think I resonate with whatever you might be feeling um, when you see that Temptation is in the title of the sermon. So let me tell you where this decision to preach on this text comes from today. Uh, It is a text from the lectionary, which is a schedule of readings for use in Christian worship that we tend to follow pretty closely, especially during certain seasons of the year, Lent being one of them. So it is a lectionary assigned gospel reading during the season of Lent, but it's not this Sunday's assigned gospel reading during the season of Lent. We have changed up the order somewhat because of the way that we're approaching Lent this year. And if you're hearing those words for the first time, I'll briefly explain to you that the season of Lent is typically a season of reflection and repentance and often of fasting and self-deprivation and a deepening spiritual experience. And it kicks off on Ash Wednesday with with the, the reminder that we are all dust and to dust we shall return, a reminder of our own mortality. But as I've said so many times this season of Lent, I feel like we had two solid years of Ash Wednesday, two years of the world rubbing ashes on our forehead, saying, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I'm not saying that the pandemic is over or anything like that, but I'm just saying we had a long time being reminded of that every day and and still perhaps being reminded of every day. And so we've adjusted the, the tone and feel of Lent a little bit deliberately during this particular year. And um, we're, we're incorporating the idea of jubilee, which you can see the, the, the word root is, shares um, it, the same root with the word jubilation or jubilant. Um, and so it's designed to be a cognitive dissonance. But the idea of jubilee is that everything kind of returns to its, uh, its first form. The land is given ch- a chance to, to rest. Uh, property is returned to its original owners. Debts are canceled. All of those things are part of the vision of jubilee in the Bible whether or not the people ever did a great job of of living it out. And so we moved some stuff around for Lent. And this gospel reading from Luke chapter 4, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, was actually from week one of Lent this year. It was assigned for March 6th, I think it was. Which is weird because most of the story takes place at the end of Jesus' fast. 
Did you notice that? The devil tempted him throughout this 40 days, but it gets very acute at the end of the 40 days. And Lent is a 40-day season, so uh, 40 days plus Sundays. And uh, I thought this story worked better today because we're getting closer to the end. In fact, next week is Palm Sunday, and we're kind of transitioning out of this, this topic, if you will, in this season. And so this story of Jesus being tempted at the end of something uh, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, whether we're thinking about the end of a season or the, uh, the end of a pandemic, however drawn out that end might be, and we don't know when uh, or exactly what it will look like um, as it happens. So I want to take a second to orient ourselves to what's happening in the flow of the narrative. There's a funny thing about how religious people read the Bible. Really, we don't read any book the, the way that we read the Bible, I'm reading a novel right now because I have tons of reading for grad school and reading for, for my work here. And at night, I just want to read something that my mind can, you know, just not have to think very hard about. And so I'm reading this um, somewhat trashy novel at, at night. And I read it until I fall asleep, which takes about 45 seconds some nights. But what I do not do is read chapter 70 and then read chapter 32 and then read chapter 65, and then read chapter 1. Nobody reads a novel that way. Now, the Bible is not a novel. Let me hasten to say that the Bible is not a novel, but the Gospels are a narrative. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and yet we still read them in these, you know, this somewhat randomized kind of way. And so I think it's helpful to know the backstory of what happened before Jesus experienced this temptation. So what happened before Jesus was tempted in this way, with this kind of acute attack by this figure described as the devil? He was doing what in the desert? He was fasting, thank you, yes. That's right there in the text. But what happened before the fasting? Does anybody have a Bible with them? If not, we have lots of Bibles in the room. You could grab one if you want. Um, This story is on page 835 in that Bible. What happens right before, in the verses right before, at the very end of chapter 3, if you have a Bible? It's a very exciting passage of Scripture. I mean, if you can't read the end of chapter 3 and be spiritually moved, I don't know what's happening in your heart right now. It's a genealogy. It's, it's a list of names. Jesus was the son of so-and-so, who was that a son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And it purportedly goes all the way back to Adam uh, in this passage, right? Which you don't need to take to mean that the biblical worldview is that the world is only a, a thousand years old or whatever. Um, we could talk about that some other time. But yes, what comes before the genealogy? I'm not, not, you don't always need to skip the genealogies, but right now I want you to skip the genealogy. What happens in the flow of the story right before Jesus goes into the wilderness? In fact, maybe you could fire up that first slide so that everybody can see the first words of this passage uh, in Luke 4 um, uh, on the screen here. It says that uh, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan. What was he doing in the Jordan? I heard somebody say it a minute ago. He's getting baptized. The story of the baptism of Jesus is the kind of the kickoff of his in-person ministry. Right? And at the end of that occasion, it says the Holy Spirit descended like a dove on him and there was a voice from heaven saying, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. That's what happened right before Jesus went into the wilderness, before, right before Jesus started this season of fasting for 40 days, right before he uh, underwent this incredible experience, which then led to a very acute um, 
experience of, of temptation at the end of the 40 days. Right? So I encourage you sometimes to read the Bible backwards. Right? It, it, you know, I don't want you to feel like you have to read every, like a whole chapter of the book every time you sit down to, to look at the Bible. But it can be helpful to read the Bible backwards. And so Jesus has this huge mountaintop experience and then goes straight into the wilderness for a season of fasting. Now that could be thought of, this fasting season, as a, as a season of deepening commitment. Right? That's what we would hope that fasting would be for us on the times when we might consider doing fasting. But it also could mean a season of intense difficulty and challenge and pain. And actually, in this case, I imagine it's probably both of those things for Jesus. And it, it says he was tempted throughout, but it's at the very end of this experience that the temptation sharpens. So this is the first thing that I would like to ask you to consider in your own lives right now. What are you at the end of? What are you nearing the end of? Are you just getting to the end of a season of intense challenge? Or are you maybe at the end of a mountaintop experience? You don't just read the Bible backwards. You need to read your own story backwards. Because whatever's happening to you today has lots to do with what was happening to you yesterday. And I think it's important for us to be aware that it's in these seasons of transition from one period of time or experience to the next where we can become very susceptible to acute, sharp temptations. So the, the first thing I would say to you is don't, don't let your guard down, especially if you think of yourself right now as coming to the end of something and getting ready to start something new. That's often a time when you will feel, this, feel the attack, if you will. So, Now I want to talk for just a couple of minutes about how the temptation goes down in this story. Now, I am very tempted. Sorry. I I kind of want to to go deep into this interaction between Jesus and this devil figure. There's a lot happening there. And I, I am a Bible nerd, unapologetically a Bible nerd. And I love helping other people, helping turn other people into Bible nerds, right? Um hopefully not in the summer camp way that some of us were Bible nerds if you grew up in in church summer camp like I did, but in a different way, like a deeper nerdy kind of way. Suffice it to say for right now that Jesus defends against this temptation by, by doing what? You probably all saw it. Maybe you've heard sermons on it. Jesus quotes scripture, right? He defends himself against this temptation by knowing the Bible and reciting it back. Specifically, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, this is where I say, like, I'm tempted to go do, like, the big Bible nerd thing. I would love to sit around a table with a bunch of you and just use whatever tools we needed to. Actually, Google is a really good one to find those passages that Jesus is quoting and to go see what's happening in those passages because so many times when a New Testament Christian scripture author or character quotes something from the Hebrew Bible, it's not just that one little line, right? You have to go back to that place and then read backwards and read forwards and see what is, what's all of the weight of this passage that Jesus is trying to bring forward into this experience in Luke chapter 4. But what happens is the devil immediately adjusts his plan and immediately starts quoting scripture back at Jesus. 
in the form of the actual temptation. Now, did you catch what passage of scripture he quoted back to Jesus? Did you notice anything familiar about it? He used my mom's bedtime psalm. (laughs) (laughs) Psalm 91, we had it read at the call to worship today. He will command his angels concerning you. Puts him right up on the pinnacle of the temple. Takes him all the way to Jerusalem, the holiest city. And puts him on the very tippy top of the holiest building and in the holiest city. And says, why don't you just jump off right now? Because you've read Psalm 91, haven't you, Jesus? I mean, you're kind of tight with God. (laughs) He'll command his angels concerning concerning you. Trust the Father, Jesus. Why don't you trust your Father? What's the point? (laughs) Well, the point is that yes, the Bible can be useful in helping you guard against temptation and in lots of other ways too. But it is not a foolproof plan for resisting temptation. And in fact, sometimes the Bible can, I know this is going to come as a huge surprise to you, the Bible can be used as a weapon against you. And Jesus says, quoting Moses, one does not live by bread alone. And if we were to bring that passage from Deuteronomy forward, we would know that the rest of it says, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's so much there. Those words were spoken by Moses. I told you I wasn't going to get nerdy, but I'm getting a little nerdy. (laughs) Reminding the Israelites about manna. Remember we talked about manna last week, the bread from heaven, the, the sustenance that God provides. Moses reminds the people as they're getting close to the edge of the promised land, listen. He's like he's warning them for the experience that he was going to have, that they were going to have, right? That I talked about last week, where that manna is going to stop. And you need to remember that we don't live by bread alone. We, we, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then if we were to jump over into John's gospel and read the prologue to John's gospel, we would see that it's Jesus himself who is the full and final word of God. And there's just so much tension in this interaction. It's, it's, it's just dripping from the story, if you know what to look for. The devil is giving Jesus scripture, and Jesus is saying, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word. He doesn't say that part, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, as if to say, you cannot quote one line of scripture to me. That's not going to do it. You have to know the whole story. And what you're telling me to do right now is not consistent with the whole story. In Jesus' case, he could go on to say, I was there when it was being written. (laughs) Don't quote the old magic to me, right? (laughs) And here's the really insidious thing. I tell you, Jesus is the true word of God. And I talk about it so often that if you're coming up with a difficult passage of Scripture um, that seems inconsistent with the character of God, if you can see Jesus as revealing the perfect character of God, which the New Testament tells us he does, you are allowed and encouraged and required, I would say, to look at that difficult passage of Scripture through a Christological lens, which is to say, um, if, I can't, if I can't interpret that in a Jesus-y way, I need to keep working at it until I can. But the problem is that 
we're 2,000 years removed from these recorded teachings of Jesus, and sometimes it's actually the very words of Jesus himself which are used as a weapon against us. Not only to condemn us, but yes, to tempt us. And so, let's love the Bible together. Especially the words of Jesus, but all of it. And let's know the Bible together, and let's work at it and learn it better. But above all, let's remember that knowledge is never a substitute for wisdom. And quoting the Bible is never a substitute for discerning the Spirit's presence in those words. Knowing a bunch of facts or memorized Bible verses or interpretations that seem neat and tidy to us is never a substitute for true, deep, spirit-filled understanding. And so, actually, with that in mind, I want to take the last few minutes that we have here with this passage and dig just a little bit deeper into what we've been given today. So... If you didn't grab your Bible out of the the seat pocket in front of you or or open your Bible app on your phone or whatever you might have before when I said that, I encourage you to do it now. Because this whole sermon is about temptation. It's titled, by the way, Temptation Comes at the End. I'd started out by asking you, what's your response to the word temptation? What visceral reaction do you have to it? And now I want to ask you, how many times does the word appear in this passage, Luke 4, 1 through 13? Now, the section heading does not count, if you didn't know, right? Though if you, you may not know this, but the, the section headings are not part of the original text. Those are added by the editorial team, by the translation team, right? So how many times does the word temptation or tempt or whatever, you know, it could come in different, different uh, tenses or forms. How many times does it appear in Luke 4, 1 through 13? I'm seeing one person hold up one finger, I see, look, I feel like I'm outside a fish show. Everybody's going like this right now. <laughs> That's a joke that nobody gets except Shane. Um, it's what you do when you need a ticket, by the way. You put your finger in the air. Um, I'm seeing people say one, but I'm seeing other people say two. Now, nobody in here has the King James Version, do you? <laughs> you can. We all can, yes. We all have, uh, we all have the Internet on our our pocket phones. We tend to use the New Revised Standard Version, which is a translation of the Bible. Um, it's the one that's in these red Bibles. And if you read the text, Luke 4, 1 through 13, in this book, this version, this translation, you'll see the word temptation appear one time. A lot of people read the New International Version, the NIV. It's another very good modern language translation. And if you have the NIV, I know who you are because you held up two fingers. Now, the King James Version gets a, a bad rap in some circles, and it gets way too good a rap in other circles. Um, it's a very beautiful work of English literature, kind of unparalleled. It's not the greatest uh, modern-day translation in the world. It didn't have access to all of the um, copies that we have that are better copies of the text than were available in 1611 when it was conducted. But it's a very interesting and useful thing to read sometimes. And if you have the King James Version of the Bible, the word tempt appears, have you found it yet? How many times? 
three times. Right. So what's going on here? In the NRSV version, the, the translation that we read at Artisan more often than not, we have the word temptation, but we also have the word test. Some versions of this story might include the word trial. Now, these are all different words in English, but in the Greek, it's all the same word, which is very interesting to me. It raises all kinds of interesting questions, such as why did the translation committee of the NRSV choose to use tempt in one place and test in another? And why did the translation committee for the NIV use tempt in two places? It's a perilous work to translate any bit of literature into a different language. And when, when, when millions and millions of people consider it the inspired word of God, it's an even more perilous task. I do not envy anybody who has to undergo or undertake translation of the scriptures. But if you've done any work with languages, and, and especially translating any kind of poetry, you know there's so many problems. There's synonyms. Which word could we use in this situation? That, you know, this, this word in the original language that we're working with could be three or four different words in English. Which one do we choose and why? You have to look at the context. There's idioms, there's expressions, right? If you were, if, if you were translating the English phrase, they let the cat out of the bag, into French, you would not say, uh, I'm not even going to try, um, but you would not say, let the cat out of the bag, literally. You'd have to find out what is the meaning of that phrase and find a different French phrase. You get what I'm saying. Metaphors, all kinds of problems with figurative language. Now listen, from what little Greek that I know, and it's a little, it seems to me that the original word that's used in this passage here in Luke 4 is actually closer to test or to trial. Most times it's used elsewhere in the scriptures and in contemporary literature of the day. Closer to test or trial than it is to what we might think of when we say the word tempt. Which, if you're a person who, like me, has a lot of weighty baggage with the word tempt, you might find very interesting. And, and even if you say the word test, I want you to think less about a school test right? and more of like a test, dri- test drive. Right? You're testing something out. Right? Or if you were to go with the word trial, less of like a criminal trial and more of a, an experience that has to be endured. The trials of life, right? So we're not so much thinking in these experiences of temptation... <laughs> We're not so much thinking about passing or failing as we are thinking about finding out what we are made of. How might it change your view of what's going on in this story to think of Jesus being tested rather than being tempted? And by the way, when it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test, Same thing. The King James actually says, do not tempt the Lord your God. (laughs) How might it change what you think this passage means? And I know it might seem kind of silly. It's just a little verb. (laughs) You're just changing the, the definition of the word a little bit. But do you see how much it can change the feeling of what's going on in this story? And perhaps most of all, most important of all, How might it change your interpretation of your own experiences 
If you imagined that seasons of temptation were less about luring you towards something that's going to get you zapped and more about putting you to the test to see what you're made of. By God's grace, of course. What if it was more of figuring out what you can get through and how rather than a high-stakes test that will determine which afterlife college you get to go to? based on your score. And so, with all of that swimming in your mind, I want to repeat my question from earlier, which is, what are you at the end of right now? What season is coming to a close as a new one begins? What set of experiences are you kind of on the cusp of being done with? And being started with. And as you make that corner in your life, recall that these are seasons when you might be ripe for temptation. And if that's an important concept for you to, to think about, even in the way that we've been talking about it until five minutes ago, I encourage you to do it. But also, as you make that corner in your life, this might be a time of trial and testing for you. And this is a chance for you um, to find out what you're made of. And as you think about what you're made of, I want you to think about who you're made by. Each one of you here in the room, watching on Zoom, listening on the podcast, viewing the cached version of this on Facebook 10 years from now, is a beloved child of God. And thank you for that lovely auditory reminder <laughs> of what it means to be a beloved child. All of this nonsense I've been, you know, trying to be intellectual about for 25 minutes is basically just ah. <laughs> And you're all like, "I know, I've been waiting for it to stop." When I ask you to think about what you're made of in this season, please don't hear me saying, like, you better be good enough or you're not going to get through to the next one. I'm asking you to think of the full breadth and beauty of what God made you. And I want you to think of that because I want you to know and be encouraged that you will make it through from this past season to the next one. By God's grace and God's strength. And I want you to be encouraged in the knowledge that we will be doing it together as the family of God expressed in this one particular local place in a local particular way. So may you know that you are a child of God. May you be aware of the strength that comes with that gift. And may you be bonded together with each other as we all make this turn, whatever it might be. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.